0: And the picture that I love of the church is this idea of the church as a mosaic. So each of us um, is a piece in that mosaic. We might be different colours, we might be shaped different ways, we might bring completely different experiences and we're kind of put together um, in what might look a bit messy if you look kind of up close. But if you stand back, it's this beautiful and glorious picture um, of what... Uh, the church can be and who God is.
1: Welcome to Reenchanting. We are the podcast from Seen and Unseen, and I am Belle Tyndall. I'm Justin Briley. And each week we talk to interesting people, uh, both with faith and not, about the way in which the Christian story has shaped our world and whether our secular, post-Christian, arguably very disenchanted culture can be re-enchanted with the wonder and the mystery of the Christian story again. So please do like, share, subscribe, comment. Anything like that helps re-enchanting to go far and wide.
2: Jenny MacDonald is an author, public theologian and speaker and the director of Theos. Her most recent book, God is Not a White Man, and other revelations told her own experience as a black woman in Britain and the way in which both culture and the church still have a long way to go in addressing racism.
1: Mm, and in recent years, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and other events, racism has become an ever more polarised subject. On the one hand, those who argue we are still living in the grip of systemic racism and white privilege in the West. And then there are those who criticize anti-racism and critical race theory and name it divisive and unhelpful.
2: But how does the Christian story speak to these issues? That's what we want to ask on today's show. Um, Is the church just as complicit in racism as the culture around it? What has helped Shinny herself to keep faith in a vision of a truly multicultural kingdom of God in which everybody's experience and personhood is valued. So that's the kinds of issues we're going to be talking about as we look at reenchanting racial justice as a whole. Um, Chinny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Yeah, um, Yeah. we record this show at the mm. top of a library and these are going to be deep issues that we're delving into, but we always start with the same question. Belle.
1: What are you reading?
0: <laughs> I am reading lots and lots of stuff I'm kind of yeah. devouring books at the moment um I tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks as well because mm-hmm. then you can listen on the go um yeah. while and doing at,
1: washing up at double speed if you're really committed yeah <laughs> and also
0: while uh, getting the baby to sleep which yeah. is my new thing but I um recently read um a book called Matrescence which mm-hmm. is by a journalist called Lucy Jones and it is about the metamorphosis of kind of birth and pregnancy and womanhood and what um, the kind of biological basis Mm -hmm. or the changes that take place when uh, women become mothers. So it's kind of uh, historical, uh, socio-historical, socio-political look at motherhood as an institution, but also the personal, the biological, psychological, economic, um, lots Mm -hmm. of different perspectives. So I've loved Mm -hmm. loved that book and it's really beautifully written as well. Um, She's also kind of interested in kind of well,
2: she writes very very poetically. Mm. Um, so yeah,
0: love it. Love Great. that
2: book. Mm. That sounds fantastic. Um, we're going to talk about the book that you wrote most recently, God is Not a White Man, today. But, but what were your early experiences in a sense that made you realise you were different to the people you were around when you were growing up in the UK?
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that I have spent most of my life in white majority contexts, often being the only black or brown person in a room or a school or a university. Mm. No, not not the only one, but one of a few. Mm. Um, I was born in Nigeria, um, in Lagos, uh, which is Africa's most populous city. It is hot and bustling and full of uh, loud entrepreneurial uh, Nigerians. <laughs> so I was born there, um, but we moved to the UK when I was four. Um, and so I moved with my parents and my two younger sisters. And we moved to Southeast London. We moved to Greenwich. Um, so one of my earliest and most vivid memories of being a child and coming mm-hmm. to that kind of first realization of myself as an individual and what I looked like was um, what a lot of reception, um, class students do, which is, um, our teacher asked us to draw a self portrait and I was mm. five years old. And, um, I remember drawing my face, um, drawing my eyes light blue, uh, and my hair, I, I drew kind of long straight yellow hair mm. and I drew uh, myself with pink rosy cheeks. Um, And then I remember my friend looked over at my portrait and she said, that's not you. And I thought, oh, (laughs) and I think that was the first moment I thought, oh, that isn't me. That's Mm. what most of my other friends look like. Um, That's what um, Disney princesses looked like. We hadn't had any kind of black or brown um, Disney princesses uh, in the uh, Mm. late 80s. Mm. Um, So that was my first realization that I um, didn't look like most other people in my class, but Mm. also that i was disappointed for some reason in that it wasn't a positive feeling mm. it was a it was there was some shame in it or some kind of feeling of um sticking out not fitting in um and so that was kind of one of my earliest memories but also i um after we moved from greenwich a couple of years later we lived in Eltham in southeast london and for those who are um who remember this uh, stephen lawrence uh, a black teenager was mm. killed in Eltham. When I was nine mm. um so kind of down the road from where i lived um and at that point in the early 90s um he uh, there were a lot of um there are a lot of white races around mm. in, in Eltham mm. and welling and places like that um so i remember being a black family living in that place at that particular point in history and feeling really um scared or not Mm. wanting to stand out or kind of looking down when you're kind of walking down Mm. the high street. So those kinds of um I guess ideas about difference and um looking different, being conspicuous in some way are kind of thoughts that have kind of followed me Mm. through Mm. from those kind of earliest childhood memories to even kind of going to university or being in kind of white majority church spaces even, you know, in my twenties and thirties.
1: And all of that, you've so generously, because I really think it is so generous when people pour so much personal stuff into a book. Um, you've so generously and beautifully poured it into your book, God is not a white man. And every now and again, Justin can attest to this, I get a bit fangirly <laughs> If I've read someone's book and just absolutely loved it, and then I get to speak to them and it's as if the book is coming to life in front of me. So apologies if I slip Aww. into that mode. But um can you Gushing
2: mode? Gushing <laughs> mode,
1: yeah. Um but before, there's so much within it that I cannot wait to talk to you about. But first and foremost, God is not a white man, the title. Can you just talk us through your decision on that title and what you mean by it? Because it's a powerful and punchy. Um, so yeah, what's the thought behind that?
0: Yeah, originally the book was going to be called This I Know and then the subheading was going to be god is not a white man
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and then i my publisher was like no that is the that is the title and <laughs> yeah. it feels quite um in your face uh, mm-hmm. as a title um and you know i've had lots of different reactions to the book like some people think that's a powerful title gosh that's punchy mm. some people immediately um take offense
2: um mm. to the title and i find that interesting yeah. what, what why what what offense are they taking cuz on the surface of it it's quite an obvious statement yeah, yeah. i i think
0: um i think it's obvious <laughs> and true um but i think some people immediately think that it's going it's part of a woke agenda right. which mm. is trying to this is often people who um are not as theologically literate right. as as they might be, but see Christianity as something that uh, is synonymous with Englishness mm. and whiteness. Yeah. So to say God is not a white man is almost um, kind of ridding them of this sense of kind of British pride, which right. I find uh, offensive myself in lots right. of different ways. But yes. mm-hmm. but I think most people who are Christians, especially, obviously, know that it's a true statement. God is not a white man. Um, God is uh, is you know not like, you know, Justin, Mm. Um, God God, um, is God. But if you were to kind of look beneath that kind of obvious statement, and if you kind of stood back and you looked at church history or theology, or if you walked into most um, churches or Church of England churches in in the UK, you would, you might be uh, forgiven for thinking God, God is a white man Mm. because actually the voices that we listen to are often white men. The ways in which God is portrayed in art is as a, a white man. Um, uh, the theology, the kind of all of the stories that we hear are kind of tipped towards whiteness and maleness. So the book title in full is "God is Not a White Man and Other Revelations" because even though I have you know always known that, there was a point in which a few years ago mm. I thought, "Oh God, God isn't a white man." literally isn't a white man also all of these kinds of uh trappings of whiteness or white superiority or patriarchy that come with or intertwined with a lot of theology and the way that the church does things mean that we need to kind of work hard at disentangling Mm. um god from the whiteness Mm. and the maleness
1: which is hard even on an individual level like you read it and you're like yeah of course and then I i remember like sitting with myself and being like I haven't, I don't, I don't think God's a white man. I haven't internalized that. And then all you have to do is picture Jesus in your mind and the chances are you picture him as a white man. And it's, that's so, you know, you can think like institutionally, we need to tear those down. And like, I've been thinking that I've been, you know, doing that. And I'm like, but within me, I can't get away from the fact that Jesus has been presented to me as a white man and God has been presented to me as a white man my whole life. Um, so it's deep, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and it, I mean, if I'm being honest, you know, I've written the book. God is not white man. Still, if I picture Jesus, the first image that comes to my mind is is white, blue eyed Jesus, yeah, or God that looks a bit like Father Christmas. And I'm trying mm. to work hard to try and change those images. Um, it's not just that white people see God as white and white people see Jesus as white. Part of the whole problem, which I try to bring out in the book, is that. Actually, if you go to my grandmother's house in Nigeria uh, and she has a picture of Jesus on her wall, that's probably white Jesus too. Mm. Um, Even in those contexts in which most people are not white, um, this idea of God and Jesus as white and therefore other to themselves, Mm. for me, runs contrary to the whole point of the incarnation, which is that God becomes like us. Now, you could then go into all sorts of questions about how we portray God in different cultural contexts. And I think there is, there's a room for that. So in kind of Chinese context, uh, depicting Jesus as um, Chinese or in Nigerian context as Nigerian, mm. Mm. Um, in order to illustrate what incarnation means, Not mm. that doesn't mean that we think that Jesus was Chinese or sure. Nigerian, but it's a, it's a symbolic way to, to demonstrate that. Now, the problem is that's not how Jesus is pictured
2: uh, for most
0: people mm. Um, around the
2: world. So one of the ways in which this could be addressed is potentially by encouraging churches and Christians to explore different ways of portraying God and Jesus. Um, I remember, so my wife and I spent about eight months in Namibia just after we got married and we were working at an Anglican mission station. And um, interestingly, they had a a black Jesus on the cross as the main sort sort of image in that church. But it was so interesting that, They were effectively acting out a service that felt very much like a what the colonialists who established that church, you know, a century or two before, would have been. The the dress was was effectively quite similar to what you know women would have worn, you know, in the eighteen hundreds, almost that the women were expected to wear, and the songs were Victorian songs, essentially in their local language, but still. Quite dreary, if I'm honest, compared to what happened as soon as the church service ended officially and suddenly all these local youth choirs came in and there were, it was just lively and musical and, and far more expressive of the, their culture than the sort of Victorian version of what they just did. So it was this interesting melange of things and, and it's so easy, you know, it, it's like Christianity at one level obviously embraces cultures that are different to it. That's partly why it's been so successful globally. But at the same time, it's so easy to, for, for us to think it has to look like one particular version of a, oh, of a culture. It's a, that, that's such an interesting
0: story because I, I write in the book about my my own great-grandfather who was an Anglican priest, but in kind of rural, rural southeastern Nigeria, and he and my great-grandmother used to run a school for um, Christian wives. So when women were um, preparing to get married, um, they would come and stay with my great-grandparents and then they would learn what it meant to be good Christian mm-hmm. wives. Um, and I used to hear the story, you now a lot, a lot when I was growing up, and then I started to realize that the stories that I was told by my parents and aunties about this, this church and this school was that, um, actually they were teaching them how to, um, bake cakes or <laughs> drink tea out of China or mm-hmm. how to dress or how to kind of, um, wear lace gloves or whatever it is. Um, so even <laughs> in my own great grandparents, um, home, uh, englishness and christianity were somehow weirdly
2: intertwined, intertwined yes. and they
0: became the same thing and it's really interesting when i mean even if you think about people becoming christians in the uk who come from particular um backgrounds who might come from working class backgrounds or whatever it is when they um become Christians, there's almost this kind of subtle idea that actually they become
2: more middle more class, middle class, yes, more yes. kind
0: of mm. cleaned up. They dress differently mm. because that's what Christianity is. And that's just absolutely not what it is. Mm. Um it's far more rich and diverse and has lots more texture than that. Um I think that's what's important in this conversation.
2: What well, one of the things that I think comes through quite powerfully, but it's it's a real challenge in the book, is that it is very difficult for someone who is white to understand the experience of a black person. Um, And to that extent, I can imagine some people going away who maybe are all for racial justice and unity, but feeling a bit dispirited. Like I I can never fully understand or stand in the shoes of someone who I don't share the same cultural background and skin color as. So, so what, what are you trying to, Put across there and saying it's there. There just is this kind of divide, effectively, between people that you, you 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 can't know what that's like, and that's where some of the problems come in because people think they can. I'm oh, I'm colorblind, but it's not that simple.
0: Yeah, sorry, my face. Yeah. my,
2: my <laughs> biggest bugbear in
0: having these conversations about race and is when people respond to what what I've said with um. I'm colorblind. I don't see race. You know, I've got a black son-in-law or mixed-race grandchildren or Mm. whatever it is, and I find that completely misses the point. First Mm. of all, the idea of um, colorblindness—I think that's that's wrong. I think what we need to see is is the color and the diversity in everyone, and recognise and value that. Not feel like we need to not see it because if we saw it, it then it would be problematic. Mm. Mm. Um, So I can understand why some very well-meaning people who are all about justice and wanting to um, end racism might feel dispirited because they um, couldn't walk in my shoes. But I think it's not about walking in Mm. my shoes. It's about standing alongside people Mm. who are walking in their own shoes. Um, I don't understand what it's like to be a white person. Um, uh, I don't understand what it's like to be someone who has a physical disability. I don't think the sadness comes from me not being able to Mm. walk in their shoes or um to, to live the lives that they live but actually what i need to do is listen to their experiences form a relationship with them really try to understand um the lives that they are leading the difficulties or the challenges or the joys that they might experience and come alongside them um i think it's really important that we it's all about relationship really it's about knowing the stories that's partly why I kind of share the kind of personal stories mm-hmm. is because actually that's the way that you can um create empathy um and solidarity rather than wanting to kind of be in my shoes I don't think that's
1: possible mm-hmm. I um well, as I was reading the book I've read it a couple of times I read it more recently oh, wow. um in anticipation for this conversation. <laughs> and both times I think I read it and I'm, it like, it absolutely like tears my heart apart on two levels. A little bit of it, because I'm like tiny little pieces about being a woman, a Christian woman. I'm like, oh yeah, I get, I've, I've experienced that. But the vast majority of it is the fact that I've been so blind and just naturally go so blind to the experiences of black women as opposed to me as a white woman. And, and, um, and and so there's a, there's a chapter in your book all about that. And it's so beautiful. And I think you say that, um, there's a sort of a line in it where you say white women should have been at the forefront of fighting for us as black women and we went, and that's so heartbreaking. And I think one of those ways, one of the, like one of the most powerful stories you put in the book is when you were, um, giving birth, was it to your son, your yeah. son, and you say, um that you were aware of the fact that you were a black woman as you were giving birth and that that might've put your son in danger. And that the fact that he had a white dad was a means of protection so that you were even regulating your behavior while giving birth to a human in Mm -hmm. accordance to being a black woman. Mm -hmm. And, um, in what, what, this is a huge question but for women for white women in particular where are the the most common blind spots where you're like you think you get it because you're a woman you think you get it because you're a christian woman and so you deal with you know those dynamics but like you you have no idea
0: oh gosh I'm trying to find <laughs> this one. um yeah so that that particular i think giving birth is one of those kind of very obvious examples in one in which there is disparity. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth uh, than white women. And then even if you look kind of globally, I I used to work for Christian Aid, and we did a kind of a maternal health campaign in which um, women in Sierra Leone were a hundred times more likely to die in childbirth than women in the UK. Wow. So there's like so much, so much kind of inequality um, yeah. that exists. Um, and the hospital that I gave birth to my first son in was a hospital that... Um, a few months before, a black woman had died giving mm. birth. So that was completely in, in my mind. And that's the first time I'd given birth. I was absolutely terrified anyway, like most no, mm. most women are um, giving birth. But I had this added kind of baggage um, and almost like a responsibility to just try and play down whatever whatever stereotypical ideas that midwives or... Because I, I, I need
2: to hear what it is about yeah. that's feeding into that. Because many people think, well, a black woman and white woman have a resource, access to exactly the same resources mm-hmm. when they go into a hospital mm-hmm. to give birth. So what's what's going on there?
0: Yeah. So there's been a lot of kind of research digging in into mm. why. Um, you might think um, that it's because of a difference in socioeconomic or educational backgrounds. But actually what the research finds is that regardless of whether a black woman is Middle class, or mm. you know, afflu- affluent, or working class, the outcomes are still bad. Right. Kind of, it's yeah. still worse for black women. So there is something happening um, in the system. It might be about kind of, <laughs> sorry, this, is, this is, might be about some stereotypes about mm. how um, black women's bodies are different and might mm. be able to take more pain. There's right. this kind of these kind mm. of subconscious ideas that go back to, um, I guess. Uh, Uh, slavery times which is about Mm -hmm. how how Mm -hmm. um the strong black woman uh, who's able to withstand pain so then when a black woman is giving birth um she might not be taken seriously Mm -hmm. or there might be some some cultural issues around you know if there are um if there's lots in the media about black women having poor outcomes within health service in general Mm -hmm. Um, Black women themselves might be less likely to go forward or ask for help and therefore Mm. they might leave it longer Mm -hmm. and uh, and put themselves in danger. Um, But there's something structural there. So there's a lot Mm. of re-education in trying to help health professionals get rid of these kinds of Mm. unconscious biases that they might have about black women.
2: It's it's the sort of area that probably a lot of people hadn't probably even thought about, but but you were, as Belle says, facing that kind of additional stress mm-hmm. when you went in to, to give birth. I mean, in that sense, people talk about systemic racism. Um, it's become a bit of a polarizing word because I think some examples everyone's happy to agree on, but others feel like, no, now it's being used sort of as a catch-all for any kind of inequality or anything that it boils down to. So, what, what what's going on? I mean, what, what would you say is the definition of that that word, and and why has it become such a loaded one or a polarizing one in in our culture just now?
0: So, the idea of systemic racism is this um, basically takes racism from the individual act or what people call microaggressions, Hmm. to kind of looking more broadly about what is it about um, our laws, or the health service, or the education system, that might mean that people who are not white face a different experience, and are potentially at at a disadvantage. Um, And that can be true of um, black and brown people, but it can also be true of um, d- disabled people mm. or um women or you know mm. there are all sorts of ways in which structures um put some people at a disadvantage in the case of systemic racism it's about race and if you look at um data over the kind of p- the past few decades um there's quite strong evidence that there is um you know institutional racism within the police or the health service or Whatever, because people have looked at um, how systems work. So, what you need to do in that in that instance is, I think, rather than be defensive about it, work out ways creatively to change, mm-hmm. to change perceptions and stereotypes, but actually change how things are done. I think the reason why um, people might get upset about this idea of systemic racism is because potentially, if you are a white working class person, you might think, well, uh, I see lots of black people who are very well off, very well Mm. educated, and I'm not. So how can systemic racism exist? Now, I think there are all sorts of um, ways in which the system, the economy, the the politics of this place um, disadvantaged lots of people in lots of different ways. But the reason why working class people might be in poverty is not because of their race necessarily um and that's that's basically the difference um so i think there's all sorts of things that can be done but people don't like this idea that they have privilege in some way when they don't feel like their lives are
2: privileged i I guess that's there are a number of different phrases that kind of come into common parlance and and i think the problem i think some of the reaction you get is because if you use the word white privilege um uh racism people say well that's not me i'm not racist i i don't even if actually they are benefiting effectively from white privilege that's unspoken and and everything else and and but it's hard to hear that i think sometimes if you consider yourself a not you know i'm not a racist Uh, so so is that part of the problem that that it's it's just challenging for people to hear that well no you're not being explicitly racist but you are benefiting from things that are essentially racist in our culture. Yeah. But part of me also
0: thinks that the people who say oh, I'm not a racist should be kind of more on board with the idea right. of systemic racism, because yeah. actually it takes it away mm. from you are an, an individual who is racist to actually, um, how can I um, support policies or call for change in society um, that is not actually about me as an individual, but about some systems mm. um, that might make sure that there is kind of more equality from my black and brown brothers and sisters. Um, I, I came across a term recently called fertility privilege. Um, the mm-hmm. writer Elizabeth Day calls, uh, talks about, mm-hmm. and she is, uh, someone who hasn't been able to have children yet. And she talks about the ways that society is tipped towards people who have children and mm-hmm. what that feels like for someone who doesn't. So I, instead of feeling kind of, um, defensive and upset about this idea of fertility privilege because I've got children, I mean, I try to be able to think okay well what must life be like for her how might i um how might i now notice the ways in which society is um kind of favors people with children um how might i kind of empathize and understand rather than kind of making it about myself yeah. and my feelings yeah. um mm. and being defensive
1: mm. i think that's the thing is that like you've said it takes someone to point it out you to, because the whole thing about privilege is that it's unseen you're, you're you're blind to your own privilege that's that's kind of the point just like um I haven't given birth I'm not a mum but if I did the color of my skin would not even factor mm. into that process for me and that there is privilege it's not that that will be an easy process it's yeah. that the color of my skin will not make it extra difficult yeah. and it takes people to speak that to you but if no one you know like uh Elizabeth Day, I love Elizabeth Day. <laughs> Elizabeth Day with that and 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 you and others like you telling your stories, how are we ever going to see? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think just,
0: you mentioned as well about my, my husband in that you know when, when I've been giving birth, and me being mm. being very aware because I live life alongside a white man, so I know I mm. know the
2: differences. That so we- does that make it more obvious the contrast because obviously you live life with a white man that that, that it becomes more apparent the differences in the way. A white person is treated.
0: Yeah, I noticed the way um, in which people might talk to him instead of me, and that's right. sometimes a male thing, sometimes sometimes mm. a gender thing, sometimes yeah. a race thing. But I also noticed um, a couple of years ago we went to uh, my grandmother's great grand my grandmother's funeral in mm. Nigeria, mm. and uh, took my husband. It was first his first time in Africa. He's from East Yorkshire. Um, he's well travelled, but he's from <laughs> East Yorkshire. Um, and we arrived. we were in a rural church, you know, packed with hundreds of um, Nigerian people and Methodist church. And we were giving um, thanks for the birth of our elders, who was actually nearly two at that point. In. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, after my grandmother had been buried. Mm. And at the start of the service, the the minister got up and he said that that we were all particularly blessed that day because Mark McDonald was there, <laughs> the only wow. white man. and Everyone kind of stood up and cheered and And I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is this to me is an example of white privilege Mm. because, um, even in that place, my hometown, um, he is the only white person, uh, white, yeah, white man in that place. But whiteness, white maleness, is seen as so special and revered, even in Nigeria, that he, you know, it was a blessing that he was there, right. So those things happen, that's quite mm. an extreme example, mm. but um, I notice how he's able to move around the world and not have to be so conscious of uh, how loud his voice is, um, mm. whether he is looking shady, whether he's wearing yeah. a hoodie, wearing mm. all these kinds of things um, that actually black people do have to think about all the time. And sometimes we're we're away and we'll... Mm. Um, be looking for a pub to go to at dinner and he'll say, well, what about this one? And there's something instinctive in me that'll go, I can't go in that pub. Like there's a, Because it's in this place, it might have a mm. George's flag outside of it and I'll just go, I, I haven't even gone in there, but there's something mm. instinctive. Right. He just hasn't had to think about these kinds of things, about walking yeah. into spaces where he is, he might be the only one mm. um, and be looked at or judged or... Um, in, in a certain way. So, so what, what,
2: I mean, both in culture and in the church, how, how do we kind of address these issues? Um, I mean, one of the, what's interesting in the book is you talk about, you know, you, you had a fairly arguably privileged education. You did study theology at Cambridge. Um, that was a place where you were one of a very small handful of black people studying, um, you, uh, and when you studied theology it was almost exclusively white Eurocentric kind of positions. Now, was, was that something you just sort of initially didn't question or was it something that later on you started to think, hang on, why, why was that the only option? Why were, was I one of a, only a tiny number of black people in at Cambridge University? What was the kind of process and how would you see that changing if it is changing at all today?
0: Yeah, I in terms of um, theology... Honestly, I didn't notice it at the time because mm. I was so used to um a whitewashed education mm. that I just didn't didn't notice it. And it was only a few years later where I realized I can't name a black theologian. Um I mean I could I can now, but <laughs> yeah, a few years ago the time, I, yeah. I couldn't. Um mm. the only um points of my theology degree in which I kind of explored other cultures was often through the lens of kind of anthropologists looking at African tribes and how mm. they did ritual or how they um what they thought about God so it's again through a, a white lens now, and that's kind of understandable um in a British university um in terms of the numbers um of black people so there were 10 um black people in my year at Cambridge of 3,000 at, mm. at that point I knew all of them like we knew we all right. knew each other um uh I definitely we definitely talked about that quite a lot. Right. There was a lot kind of um, a lot of stuff going on around kind of access schemes for black students to get into Oxbridge. Now those numbers are are quite a lot different. Um, there are many more. And interestingly, I had lunch last week with a black um, young woman who's just graduated from uh, doing theology at Cambridge. And interestingly, she said that um, she's just done a course. Um, part of her kind of course was around um decolonizing Christianity like that's one of the papers that she took mm. at Cambridge and I thought oh, I would never have imagined that they would do that so clearly mm. there is change that is happening um and part of that is because a lot of of a lot of work that has gone on in terms of decolonizing the curriculum across kind of academia and lots of different spaces um so change has definitely happened um you know, 20 years after I left you know she was able to talk talk to me about that um, but I, it's not something i noticed at the time and if you think about the past few years um in kind of um, world politics we've had to have these conversations that actually have probably accelerated some of these mm. um moves forward in making sure that we try to learn about the world um in a kind of a more broad uh, and inclusive diverse way because that's what the world is um the world isn't just full of white people or white Mm -hmm. European men uh, in the 19th century either.
2: Um, Mm -hmm. I remember when a famous um, white female Bible teacher in America tweeted about needing to diversify and decolonize her theological bookshelf, she got Mm -hmm. a lot of pushback quite often from people saying, look, the gospel is the gospel. Okay. If it's true, it's true. You don't have to kind of, you know, it doesn't make, it should make a difference who's telling you that it, there's just, you know, there's, there's biblical truth and, uh, you don't have to have it from lots of different people. If it, if it's true, it's true. What's wrong with that perspective?
0: I think we see a lot fewer theology books written, wouldn't we? Um, it's interesting that mm. people might say, um, theology uh, you know the bible is the bible and actually we don't need to hear it from lots of different spaces but then the majority of the spaces that we do hear it from um are from particular men mm. um uh, in the world so but i think part of this whole conversation is actually about um making god bigger in our minds rather than smaller um the whole point of theology is studying god from a human perspective mm. and that human perspective isn't just from um the perspective of a small narrow group of people living at a particular point in history actually um understanding of who god is becomes much more rich um by uh, thinking about how people in the global south um think of and experience god um and it's obviously part of a kind of much broader issue about um the global north dominating most things in the world um, and it's been wrapped up in that but, but even these ideas about decolonizing the bible or uh theological education one of the fundamental things i think people don't talk enough about is the fact that hardly anyone in the bible was white mm. like it's not it's not that the bible or christianity is white people's and therefore we're, and we're including other people's voices and <laughs> it's about diversifying actually no, it's not just Jesus who wasn't white. It is um, all of them. Isaac, <laughs> Moses, David, mm-hmm. like everyone, Mary. Um, and how about we think about that as well? And I do wonder, though, how that might have changed the course of Christianity. Um, mm. If there wasn't this kind of, I guess, whitewashing of all the biblical figures, um, would it have taken off <laughs> in America, Yeah. Uh, for yeah. example? Yes. Oh, that's um, really
1: interesting. Yeah,
0: so... So yeah, it's not just that Jesus wasn't white, right. it's it's mm. hardly mm. any of the kind of uh biblical mm. heroes that we often talk about mm. that
1: were. Mm. Can I ask you about Beyonce? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> we had <have> to get <laughs> <favorite> to Beyonce <laughs> eventually. Yeah, from theology to Beyonce. <laughs> um can you tell me? I went to go see her Renaissance tour like oh, a couple of weeks me too. ago. Yeah. yeah. And it was so so good. And I have so many thoughts. But first, can you tell me about Lemonade the Lemonade album for anyone who doesn't know her Lemonade album your relationship with it your experience of it
0: yes so um I'm sure there are lots of Beyonce fans (laughs) watching and listening but yes Lemonade (laughs) album came out in 2016 and it was Mm -hmm. um Beyonce many years ago was in a girl band called Destiny's Child and they're pretty much a kind of average not average but r&b kind of they did pretty well they did pretty well yeah. they, were, they weren't they average were, though, right. but they're they they were not saying anything profound yeah. in their music probably mm. Mm. um maybe their later stuff um but beyonce's lemonade album was a, her first kind of visual album and the story of lemonade has so much in it about the human experience but actually quite a lot of it about um about grief about Mm -hmm. uh faith in god about doubt um it has this kind of psalm like quality Mm -hmm. to it in which life is explored in all of its different um ways and actually beyonce um we we laugh about kind of going from theology to to beyonce but Mm -hmm. actually a lot of her music and the lyrics and the poetry that she uses Mm -hmm. is infused with kind of theological imagery yeah um so for me um and for lots of black women, um, and for lots of women in general, at that time, it was 2016, in the UK we'd have Brexit, and Trump was elected um, in the US, and that year, um, the Lemonade album came out, and there was so much in it that it felt like an anthem for um, for women, and for black women in particular. So, um, in as part of the visual al- album, she included um, kind of iconic black women, such as Serena Williams, she included the... Um, the mothers of black people who had been killed by police in the US. Mm. Um, there's lots of imagery in it about, um, interestingly, um, black African um, indigenous religion, in which there are kind of black female goddesses Scenes so that's kind of controversial. Mm. But actually, um, for lots of black women who have maybe grown up in the church, but left it because of this sense of... Um, the church not addressing race issues they have actually found their own sense of faith by returning to those kinds of religions or Mm. those places in which they can see god um god that actually looks like them so Mm. lots of interesting things going on Mm. there um but yeah that that that's the lemonade album Mm. and um yeah I, i just love her um poetry she can be quite controversial um lots of um my aunties would not uh, (laughs) like her music very much um but i think she uh, speaks to so many women's experiences Mm. including black women
1: Mm. there's a real there's a there's a real power i suppose isn't there in being seen and being celebrated and for that to come from beyonce is really powerful so i went to the renaissance tour um when she was in Cardiff and it was great. And what I absolutely, I mean, it was just a, like a a show, it was really (laughs) enjoyable, but what was so amazing was being, was seeing so many people like celebrated by this woman. Mm. And they had been told that they were seen by this woman and understood by this woman. And there's such a power in that. And why she didn't win a Grammy that will forever be one of the mysteries <laughs> yeah. of history. I think, won't <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> okay. what, what, what,
0: one of the things that I love, actually, about a Beyoncé concert I've seen—that's her my fourth time I've seen her in concert—is oh, no. actually those are the places in which I'm surrounded by more Black women than I am in other yeah. than in any other any other context. Yeah. What's interesting in that is that I think, just like I think that people might experience something of the numinous or the otherworldly mm. or the spiritual. At a football match, when they're kind of mm. singing together, I really sense something in a, a Beyoncé mm. concert. What's interesting about Beyoncé is that you know she has, on occasion, said things like "God is God and I am not." Mm. So as people kind of adore her as a, <laughs> a kind of icon, she she's mm. often kind of pointing away from herself mm. um, uh, to God,
2: and I, yeah. that's another reason why I love her. Mm. Mm. I, I suppose it's also helpful when you do have a beyonce as a role model someone who looks like you if you are not white um and is very successful in their own sphere i mean bringing it back to the church is that also part of the problem that if you probably have grown up in the uk you whether you're black or white you've probably unless you specifically grew up in the black church tradition you won't have necessarily seen people who look like you representing your faith and is that i mean is it is it about just consciously addressing that to some extent
0: yes um one of the things i love most when I, when I speak in kind of churches about the book is when there's that one question that comes from a young black woman at the end who says something like i left the church i left my church many years ago but mm. i've come back to this event because um because are talking about race mm. and racial justice there are so many black millennial and gen z women who have grown up in kind of white majority church contexts who kind of often leave out the back door because they're just not going to stand for kind of what they see mm. to be an injustice um or someone not um or the church not reckoning with kind of mm. the racial injustice mm. that it's been um complicit in over many centuries so they tend to kind of leave um they might um lose their faith altogether but or they might continue to have a faith in God but just not the one that's represented in the churches Mm -hmm. that they see and that for me is a big problem um Mm -hmm. because actually um the picture that's been painted of God is that God doesn't I mean that God cares about maintaining um the status quo of Mm. white superiority and patriarchy um and I don't think I think God is a God that the God that I believe in is a God that breaks down barriers between people. That is a God of justice, um, that invites people in. And, and so many people are not seeing that and then just leaving
2: out the back door. And that's why it's a problem. I mean, to some extent, again, there's that question for me though. It's slightly awkward question, but like, perhaps the reason why we do still live in an age where you get predominantly black churches and predominantly white churches is because, um, someone who, who does come from, you know, uh, you know, a, a tradition that's perhaps tied to the Windrush and everything, they found their community in a people who had the same experience as them because they kind of couldn't find it in the white churches. So black majority churches, you know, started in response to that. Um, The problem is, it's kind of, are we meant to be consciously, is it is it a shame that we don't have truly unified churches? Or is it just that it's because it's so difficult for white people to understand the, the perspective of a black person that, that it naturally turns into these kind of two different type of, kind of diasporas or, or, you know, yeah, ethnicities kind of worshiping in their separate buildings, even though they say, well, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're just doing it, you know, in our own two, two buildings. Kind
0: yeah. Of. So, so much, so much <laughs> to say that. I think one of the um, really moving stories I came across when I was researching my book was during the um, period of slavery in America, um, often Christian um, enslaved people would be allowed to go uh, Mm. and gather together with um, other enslaved people under hush arbors, hush arbors, like nestled Mm. under trees. And that's Mm. where they would read the Bible, a Bible that talked to them about their um, emancipation and freedom, uh, a God that really saw saw them, the place that they would worship together away from the um, gaze of their white owners. Um, so I think there's absolutely something to be said for being able to gather with other um, uh, black Christians or Christians from your culture in which there is something special that happens mm. there. But why w- Why was that happening? That was happening because they were uh, enslaved people that were owned by white yeah. people and they were mm. allowed off at certain uh, points in the week. Um, why did the majority of those kind of black majority churches that happened, That began in the 60s and 70s kind of post Windrush happened they happened because often um people would arrive from say the Caribbean they would arrive at the doors of churches expecting to be with their kind of brothers and sisters in Christ and be turned away at the door from kind of white white majority churches um they would then start their own spaces so actually these um at the very kind of beginning of these movements was actually about rejection and about racism mm. Uh, mm. and and the white church rejecting, rejecting them. Now, um, if there was no more racism, I don't know whether that would necessarily mean that everyone could, would kind of mm. be all um, mixed up together and diverse, but I actually think that that's how I wish things were. Mm-hmm. I think that there shouldn't be... Um, monocultural churches because to mm. me that does not mm. reflect this kind of radically diverse messy um uh, church that is written about from kind of first century palestine mm. a place where they were all, all coming from all sorts of different places and backgrounds they had to kind of work it out together they would mm. probably uh, there was probably lots of um tension friction disagreement ways of doing things but actually part of the beauty of but part of the beauty of the Christian faith is that God um, tears down those dividing walls of hostility mm. between people as it's written in Ephesians 2. Um, and that to me is a beautiful picture of how the church should be.
1: Mm. I, uh, last summer I went to like a, a worship event, which will sound odd to any listeners who aren't Christians, but and it was a 72-hour one. You sleep in that, and <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, yeah, Be yeah. very tired. You sleep and you eat, but it was like it was like this set list. Um, it's called David's Tent. It's a real cool place. I recommend it. But they, so there's a set list of artists, and we were, I think maybe so. It runs, you know, lunchtime Friday to lunchtime Monday, and um, an artist. I say artist with inverted commas because you know, worship leader artists It's all a bit murky. But um, Jake Isaac came on, and he did this little set that I think was specifically had really Jamaican roots. And I learnt more in that half an hour set. Like, it's not that I learnt more, but I learnt something new about the nature of church, the nature of family. Yeah. I learnt an expression of, you know, corporate worship that I that I hadn't known. Yeah. And we will, we would lose all of. We wouldn't be able to learn from each other. We wouldn't be able to. It's a, exactly like you say. We would lose it all. Yeah. We, it would be so dull.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you were talking about the. Was it the Victorian? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. in, influence in church in Namibia. Namibia. Yeah, uh, like, uh, yeah. Part of the beauty of the church is the diversity mm. and the difference and the kind of different styles and all of that. To me, reflects who God is. Like, mm. God isn't just kind of part of this particular culture. Yeah. Um and <laughs> even there, there are some kind of songs. Interestingly, songs like Waymaker um, mm. that have been really become really popular in yeah. the UK and the US kind of Christian churches and um, was written by a Nigerian woman. Mm. And actually, if you listen to her sing it, it's like, it sounds like a Nigerian woman singing it. Yeah, it's very um, and, um, and it's like one of the uh, probably only success stories in the kind of um, mm. worship world that's ha- been written by someone who wasn't...
2: Sinach, was it? Who wrote yeah, that. Sinatch, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and actually, how much more exciting and diverse would our kind of Mm -hmm. worship or our music Mm -hmm. be if we just included lots of different cultures. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do anyway, we probably don't notice, um, (laughs) but actually kind of more explicitly um, think about other languages, other styles, um,
2: and not just in music, but in everything that we do Mm -hmm. across church. I mean, you paint there a picture of of what it could be like, you know, the, that, that beautiful vision that you see in the early church, which they were kind of working through as they went through it, you know, their their issue often was Jew and Gentile and how do we make this work, you know. But they were committed to seeing that it really was united. It wasn't sort of, you have your church, we have our church. I think, that. so how do we get that vision, hopefully, to influence the bigger picture we're seeing in culture, which for me, sort of since the murder of George Floyd, it feels like things have kind of got worse rather than better in the sense that it feels like the the rhetoric has ramped up. There's this polar polarism between those who say racism is worse than ever, that 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 this kind of gave a picture, it is kind of the activists who say, Look at how awful it is, and those kind of almost on the other side who say, This is a huge overreaction, you know. Um, and it's it's all become too polarised. No, no. So arguably one person who has said that kind of thing is Catherine Burblesing, who we had on the podcast last season, who is a mixed race herself. She is coming from a point of view of, you know, being headmistress of a very successful school. And she she said to us, she's really concerned at the amount of sort of what she calls critical race theory in school books and that kind of thing, the way that that has shifted, she said, since sort of events like George Floyd and so on, um, because she feels it's more divisive, more unhelpful ultimately by kind of concentrating on the differences in, in that sense. And she felt like it was time to kind of go back to sort of something that we can unite around. Like in her case, she, she was advocating for British culture, you know, let's let's use this as something so rather than... So what, what's your response to someone... Not necessarily just her, but but anyone who's kind of coming from that perspective and saying it's got, you know, it's actually got more divisive since we've started to really pinpoint things like the systemic racism and, and, you know, critical race theory. Perhaps you need to explain what that is for those who aren't familiar with the term.
0: Yeah, I um So I think when some people hear the term critical race theory, they hear critical And what they hear is, you're having a go at me because I'm white. And they take offense at that. But actually, critical race theory is an academic lens through which we look at how laws are made, how society functions, but through the lenses of of, race and power. And that's a very legitimate, to me, way of looking at the world. Um, Now, some people might say that it it overplays uh, this idea of racism actually people aren't that racist or society isn't that racist but actually um it might feel like that but until you interrogate things um that's when you can um, assess whether it is or not or mm. not mm. um it's interesting that Catherine burble Singh. um she's a very brave, brave brave woman i kind of follow her on twitter and she was on our podcast and um, the sacred a little while ago um Recently, she has been a, in a spat with Jess Phillips, the MP, um, mm. in which she accuses Jess Phillips of being racist towards her. Now, I found that really interesting for someone who says that we shouldn't highlight race. Then. When it comes down to you feeling um, like someone is, is 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 treating you in a certain way because of race, I think that's a legitimate way to be able to respond. So to shut down um, or try to quieten these, uh, I guess, these voices... In society that are saying hey things are a bit unfair when it comes to race or here's how our world might be racially unjust rather than kind of quieting those I think we should interrogate um and yeah. welcome those conversations um I, I actually I, I think to say that it's more it's creating more division um by highlighting racism is something that's been used by, by kind of racist societies for decades. Mm. Um, we don't want to interrogate it because actually it makes us uncomfortable or we get defensive about not, not wanting it to be seen as racist. Um, I think it's important that that we do. Um, I think one thing that I've noticed kind of post George, George Floyd, um murder and the Black Lives Matter protests that kind of took off again um, then was actually I was seeing people who I'd never heard... Talk about race, Mm. including white church leaders um, going on marches, suddenly Mm. recognizing that the world was potentially um, unjust um, or unequal for those in their congregations who are black and trying to do something about that. And I think what's happened um, tangibly over that time is that you've seen a lot more um, black people in positions of leadership or Mm. kind of getting kind of key jobs or um, uh, even uh, joining the cabinet. Um, And I think that those things are good and important, but I also think that they're only good and important if they make a difference for the black communities themselves. So there's no point um, in someone having a senior leadership position if it doesn't make a difference Mm -hmm. um, for uh, black communities um, Mm. elsewhere, whether or not those people themselves have come from those contexts. Um, So basically, it's not enough to make change if you just kind of promote people to certain positions.
1: Mm what is it or what aspects of Christianity your Christian faith fuel and inform and frame your idea of like racial justice and because I think many people particularly if anyone's listening who's not Christian they would sort of say Christianity has such a bad track record how could it possibly be a way that to enchant sort of this idea of unity and of racial justice what would you say to those kinds of Back to that tension there?
0: I think um, the bit of the Christian faith that I hold on to is the person of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus was someone who um, sided with the marginalized, the oppressed, who died a shameful death, who um, experienced kind of violence, and who walks with us in our pain. Um, Jesus to me isn't just the kind of victorious God who is strong and macho and powerful and white. Um, mm. He is all those kinds of the opposites of that. Um, but time and time again, when I think about the early church in the New Testament, again, it is that idea of um, God being a God that is open-armed, that transcends any culture, that transcends um, any time in, in, in culture as well, um, and invites all of us in, um, no matter our background, no matter what we've done, no, mac- no matter the politics we hold or the baggage that we hold, um, but, but God is um, that kind of opened-armed God. And the picture that I love of the church is this idea of the church as a mosaic. So each of us um, is a piece in that mosaic, Mosaic. we might be different colours, we might be shaped different ways, we might bring completely different experiences and we're kind of put together um, in what might look a bit messy if you look kind of up close. But if you stand back, it's this beautiful and glorious picture um, of what uh, the church can be and who God is.
2: How can we take that vision and try and tell... A world out there that is still very split on these issues and the church frankly itself is split on these issues uh so that's the tension i suppose isn't it well how where can we how can we give that vision that mosaic vision in the church itself but also to a culture which is is still really at odds with each other on on these issues
0: yeah i think practically when it comes to church i think We, um, those of us who lead um, in church or who have some, play some part in helping church function, we all need to work a little bit harder to make sure that different stories are heard, that different theologians are quoted, that we're reading different books, that uh, the things that we say are informed by by a diverse range of ideas that come from different places, so that what we say um, uh, can be heard by the different people that hopefully make up our church community. So there are kind of practical things that I think we can do. But there are also, um, I think what we need to do is really listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ, hear their stories, empathise, walk alongside them in solidarity, not try to necessarily fix things for them, but hear them. There is such power in hearing each other out and um, I also think it's important for white people to have these conversations by themselves. Now, mm-hmm. it can be tricky to do, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, in creating kind of white only spaces. But actually, we have a tendency sometimes to have black people speaking about their often traumatic experiences to rooms full of white people. And white people need to confront um, the thoughts, um, the painful thoughts that are going on in their heads um, in order for us to be able to move forward. Actually, it's better for all of us. We need to tell a a kind of more compelling story about what equality and racial justice look like. It's better for all of us if uh, the world is more equal. It's better for Mm. all of us if our teams are more diverse because diverse teams are stronger. It's better for all of us if black people aren't killed in the street. And actually, this is about all of us, not them
2: and Mm. us. Really helpful stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk through it. Um, Janee's book... God is not a white man, is available. It's brilliant. And we'll Mm. make sure there's a link from it from today's show. You've got another book coming out. You announced it shortly before this interview on social media. Tell us what's next in the pipeline.
0: I'm working on another book. It's called Unmaking Mary, The Myth of Divine Motherhood. And Mm. it's really about the dark side of motherhood, but through looking through the very perfect lens of how we portray Mary,
2: the mother Mm. of Jesus. Another autobiographical book, by any chance? Probably. I like, I like
1: oversharing. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much you. Um, for this conversation and for the book. It really is wonderful. And for everything you do with Theos as well, which we didn't get to touch on, but yeah. you can always tell when someone from Theos is in the room. Yeah. It's like a yeah. little genius. is <laughs> present in the room
2: they have some rather good podcasts of their own but i don't know whether we should be you (laughs) know highlighting the competition (laughs) bell but you know yeah anyway thank you you so much god bless you you. you've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.